my female boss pulled me aside and said, you know what, Shell, we've decided that you're probably more valuable to us behind the scenes. And she's like, oh, I didn't want to have to say it out loud, but um, you're too fat for TV. Turn on the television, turn on any news bulletin and find me a woman who doesn't conform to that very, very narrow beauty ideal. I feel as though eating disorders were often glamorised in publications. Women were sold this lie by, by people in the advertising and, and magazine industries. And they would say, oh, but it's just women love glamour. It's what women want. Different designers embraced or they were seen to embrace all body shapes. Oh, yes, we're going to use plus size models. But then it slowly went, Fashion Week was looming, and it slowly went back to your quintessential models. This is Butterfly Let's Talk from your friends at Butterfly, your national voice for body image issues and eating disorders. I'm Sam Eichen, and I'm so glad you're here. We've heard a lot about the dangers of misinformation lately, but these things are not new. And I'd argue that as a society, we've been fed misleading beauty and thinness standards through advertising and the mass media for decades. It's difficult to say which medium is the worst culprit, whether it's the news media, whether it's advertising, whether it's curated content on social media. But most of the guests we spoke to for this episode agreed that it all started with magazines. What we all learned about how a woman's body should look was so incredibly unrealistic because not only were the models that we saw or the celebrities that we saw just tall, white, skinny, incredibly beautiful, flawless and, you know, Anglo-Saxon and able-bodied, but also they were also airbrushed. That's Mia Friedman from Mamma Mia. We'll be hearing more from her in just a moment, but... If it was just a matter of dressing up the cover of a magazine or a billboard to make it look pretty, that would be one thing. But exposure to misleading beauty imagery has serious consequences. Growing up, experiencing disordered eating, I experienced a lot of internalised fat phobia because I grew up in the 2000s with the magazine era where everyone was looking a certain way and by looking a certain way I mean very thin. To get an idea of how big the problem this misrepresentation of beauty standards is I pulled in the communications manager from Butterfly Alex Cowan. In fact I feel as though eating disorders were often glamorized in publications in the glossy magazines and in some ways I feel as though there's a lot of women in particular that have severe body image issues because that is all that was available in terms of who we should be aspiring to, essentially. And all of those people were very, very thin. We often think of women as the demographic worst affected by this, but as Mia Friedman explains, young boys are also vulnerable. They learned about what a woman's body should look like from looking at magazines, whether it was their own magazine or, you know, their older sisters. Mia was always an avid consumer of magazines as a girl, and she went on to live out her dreams of being a major player in the industry. 
When I came into magazines at age 19, I started um, just doing work experience at Clio and I was a massive fan of magazines. I've always been a fan and a consumer of women's media um, first and foremost and I've certainly based all the decisions that I've made as an editor on my experiences as a consumer. And I had a really love-hate relationship with with women's media back then because the only women's media back then in the in you know until the internet came along was mag- women's magazines, and I loved them because there were articles about feminism and about relationships and about sex and and really if you wanted to know anything about being a woman or a girl, you had to find it in a women's magazine, but. The hate part came from how bad they made me feel about myself. I am an able-bodied, white, size 10 probably woman, and I felt incredibly terrible about myself when I looked through magazines because nobody in a magazine looked like me. And if that was my experience, I knew for a fact that there were many, many other women who would feel the same way and even less represented than I did. Mia Friedman left the magazine industry before it took a nosedive, and she now runs one of Australia's most popular women's news and podcasting companies, Mamma Mia. But she has dabbled in TV, where she found out, surprise, surprise, that industry was just as toxic. I worked in television for a little while, a very little while, seven seven long months, Um, and I was in rooms where men were talking about how fuckable women were that were on television and were they While you're in the room. Yeah. Yeah, while I was in the room, of course. Um, And that was seen as a legitimate conversation to have. And I I would also say that so much attention is put on magazines, which are really redundant now. I mean, it's like, you know, don't give that. They've got no power. But turn on the television, turn on any news bulletin and find me a woman who's not, in, doesn't conform to that very, very narrow beauty ideal. I did my journalism degree and I did a double major in broadcast because I loved radio and I wanted to get into TV. But I was so nervous because I couldn't see anyone who looked like me on TV because I've always been curvy um, and... They don't have curvy girls on TV. They have size six blondes. That's about it, right? My name is Shelley Horton. I am a journalist and a TV presenter. Presently, I work with Channel 9, so I do spots on Today Extra and Today Show. I'm also the lifestyle host for Nine Honey, which is the women's website associated with Channel 9. Shelley's got a lot to say about the lack of body diversity displayed on television, but she's also been at the coalface and experienced it. I moved to London um, and I got a job on TV over there, which was fantastic, a daily entertainment show, the dream come true. So I knew I was good on TV. So when I came back to Australia, I was my confidence was fairly high. I'm like, yeah, I can do this. And so... I got a job at Channel 9 in Sydney and I was working on a show called uh, Entertainment Tonight. You know, so they did an Australian version for one year and it was hosted by Richard Wilkins and Mari Patani. 
I was the roving reporter, so I'd be out on the red carpet to all of the movie premieres, interviewing the stars, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, Yeah, amazing job. And about three months into that job, um, my female boss pulled me aside and said, you know what, Shell, we've decided that you're probably more valuable to us behind the scenes. And I'm like, what do you mean? And she's like, I didn't want to have to say it out loud, but um, you're too fat for TV. And I was a size 10. A size 10. Now, I don't want to talk a lot about clothing sizes, but I think I need to point out that a size 10 is well under average in Australia. Shelley's experience is the first-hand account of the industry's insistence on selecting a narrow and, for many of us, unrealistic body type. And as a consumer, it's difficult not to get sucked into the mirage that we're presented with constantly, almost everywhere we look. Not only is it harmful, but it's irresponsible. Now, a really important question to ask at this point is, are the decision makers, who are the people who continue to insist on presenting these unhealthy ideals, aware of the damage that they're doing? The middle-aged white men who are actually making the decisions on who gets on air and who doesn't have no idea absolutely no idea and it's offensive when you think about it what i am finding now though that there has been a slight change so it used to be if a woman got pregnant and she was a newsreader they would raise the desk for a while and then she'd just disappear and not come back so now pregnancy and and weight fluctuation with pregnancy is absolutely acceptable. It's slowly changing. But again, you're celebrated when you lose weight. Your men, The men in media do not get the same amount of scrutiny that women get. Um, I get trolled all the time because I give my opinion on TV and therefore trolls attack. That's the simple equation. But what happens with my trolls is they don't like what I'm saying about, say, boxing, and then it turns into, go to Jenny Jenny Craig, you fat slob, Uh, and you're too fat to be on TV. And So for me, all of the negative uh, criticism that I get gets focused on my body, not on what I say. So that's a really frustrating thing. And that's part of the reason that I've decided I'm very unfiltered and very unfiltered on Instagram as well. Like you'll see shots of me like this morning with hair and makeup done in my great dress, but then on the weekend you'll see me without makeup and, you know, I'm wearing a uh, swimsuit and not hiding myself. So I'm, I'm really trying to make a change within myself as well as coping with working in this very, very judgmental and difficult industry. When it comes to how eating disorders themselves are spoken about, the media will often portray anorexia nervosa affecting only young white females from upper middle class backgrounds. As Alex Cowan told us earlier, it's a demographic that's at risk, but it's only a tiny proportion of the eating disorders that actually exist. I cannot tell you the amount of journalists that have gone, oh my gosh, wow, when I say to them, anorexia actually only makes up 3% prevalence in terms of eating disorders. 
it's binge eating disorder, in fact, that is the most prevalent eating disorder. And they're like, oh my gosh, I did not know that. And I feel as though if you can educate someone in that moment, then we're going to see a much bigger difference in the way that eating disorders are portrayed in the media down the line. What happens is us as young women internalize that image and we tell ourselves that in order to be successful, in order to be accepted, we need to look that way. And if you learn that from a young age, you're most likely going to carry that internal sentiment with yourself throughout the course of your life, right? Unless you have a lot of therapy to unpack it. Oh, yeah. If we can't see ourselves, then we either assume something is wrong with us or um, we will try to imitate the shapes or sizes that um, are the ones that we see most often. Luckily for Alex, she's not tackling this problem all on her own. I'm Elizabeth Payton and I am the project lead at Every Mind that looks after the Mindframe program. So we know that some ways of communicating about eating disorders and body image can be harmful for people in our communities. Um, Studies indicate that women in particular have been introduced to behaviours associated with eating disorders through media representations And um, other research has found that um, the thin ideal or more recently the muscular or superhero ideal have led to greater body dissatisfaction and disordered um, eating behaviours as well. So there are around like a million Australians that live with an eating disorder. So problematic communication about this issue can have an impact on a really significant population. And we don't want media stories to add to those numbers. So here's where the situation gets a little bit complicated. Being able to see diversity of body shapes and sizes is proven to reduce body dissatisfaction and other self-esteem related issues that put people at a higher risk of developing eating disorders. But when it comes to the conditions themselves, spreading awareness of the harsh realities of eating disorders can be problematic. When we show people the specific behaviours, then they have what is essentially a model to follow. Um, And we want the opposite of that. We want people to model behaviours for how to get help, how to work through recovery, um, or even how to identify that there's an issue. So we want to see more of those kinds of stories that provide a better model for how to recover, how to get through, rather than showing people how to actually engage in some of these behaviours. It's easy to see how the most well-meaning reporter, editor or content creator could get it wrong, which is why Elizabeth and her team have developed a set of guidelines outlining the best practices. They're called the Mindframe Guidelines, and they're slowly becoming a staple in newsrooms and boardrooms around the country. The original guidelines for reporting on eating disorders were developed in 2012, and that was done in consultation with the Butterfly Foundation, the National Eating Disorders Collaboration and media experts, and was supported by a review of the research. And then the guidelines were actually redeveloped, um, prompted by new research, and then feedback that the existing resource could be more inclusive, particularly 
of LGBTIQ plus bodies. And then the updated guidelines were launched in 2021. I refer journalists day in, day out to the Mindframe guidelines. Every single media request that comes into my desk, I will send them a copy of the Mindframe guidelines. But unfortunately, they aren't necessarily binding, which I think is part of the issue. Because even though I can send those to a journalist and suggest that they adhere to them, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to do that, particularly if they're uneducated about eating disorders. So I guess in the same breath, it's my role to educate them about the stereotypes that exist around eating disorders and body image issues and who they can impact. And if you can kind of take that approach, then we're more likely to have more cut through when it comes to the Mindframe guidelines. We'll come back to the all-important Mindframe guidelines and how you can find them shortly. But first, it's time to meet our final guest, who works where two of the most arguably problematic industries collide in terms of body image and eating disorders. I'm Melissa Hoyer. I'm a fashion and lifestyle commentator. I've been an editor for years and years, but at this point, I'm um, basically a freelance commentator for television. You know, my world was full of looking at the of perceptions of beauty, of looking at models, of booking models, of going to runway shows, um, looking at, 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 at new collections of designers, and all of those things would be on five foot ten slim women. End of story. Yeah. Um, so even though I'm, you know, a five foot two curvy, I'm a curvy little five foot two person. So I've never ever been one to to sort of show off my body. And, and, and there's probably a subliminal thing in my head because I've worked, I did work for so long in that industry that, that passed off perfection and a normal body shape as being like a model. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. So therefore, if I was to sh- photograph myself in a swimsuit, that's sort of like, well, I would. there's no way I would have done that 10 or 12 years ago because it's like, well, no, I can't do that. I'm not a model. Mel has seen the industry change for the better in recent years, but she's still not convinced that it's any way enough to reverse the horrible impact traditional fashion reporting has had on the way people feel about their bodies. About 10 years ago, they started sort of, and and even different designers embraced, or they were seen to embrace all body shapes. Oh, yes, we're going to use plus-size models. But plus-size models to a lot of fashion designers is a size 12. No matter how many designers have incorporated larger sizes into their collections, you still look at, at most runways, whether it's New York, Paris, London, Sydney, wherever, and, and, and the, the most, most of the runway models are still, no question, 8 to 10. They'll put a plus-size girl, a.k.a. a size 12, in sort of nearly, nearly as a token gesture, but it's certainly very rare to see an entire collection modelled on on normal sizes or a runway full of 
of, of, of normal size, size 12 to 14 women. And while the people who run the fashion, media and advertising industry seem to think their extremely narrow version of what bodies should look like is working for them, Melissa Hoyer's experience tells us a different story. When I was the fashion editor of the Daily and the Sunday Telegraph, there was a story that I read. It was in, um, I think it might have been in American Vogue. I think I photocopied it. I mean, like it's, it was back in the days when you'd actually be, we'd be looking at magazines, but it was, someone had it on their desk and the big heading was, and it would have been probably in like the late 90s, the return of the curve. And that was like, that was the head, heading basically um, about, you know, we're, we're returning to the days of Marilyn Monroe-esque beautiful curves and da-da-da-da. But I, I sort of, you know, did my own interpretation of the return of the curve. And, and, and that was in newspaper days. And the amount of letters I got and a few emails, but mainly letters, because I remember people used to actually write letters saying they like things. It was phenomenal. And, 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 and they all said, oh, it was so refreshing to, to read about fa- the fashion industry having embraced real bodies. And that was back in, I'm going to say really, like, it was like probably 97, 98, 99. Yeah, right. um, that's 20, 25 years ago. And I was so yeah. excited because I did it for my like fashion pages. And, and because of the reaction, even like, I think that we ended up doing a few more of those stories in the, in the next few weeks. And we sort of brought them to the front of the paper because, because they were proving so popular. But then it slowly went. And I think Fashion Week was looming and it slowly went back to just back to the drawing board of your quintessential models. And Mia Friedman had a similar experience when she took the helm at Cosmopolitan back in its heyday. I think that um, one of the things that I wanted to do when I became an editor is to change the way women were represented. So in Cosmo, I started putting women of all shapes, sizes and skin colours in every issue of every magazine I published uh, and and I edited. And I nearly lost my job because of it a couple of times because my bosses um, felt this was a very bad thing for the magazine's brand, but the readers loved it. And straight away, the magazine, you know, went to number one in circulation and, and readership and all those measurements. So Often women were sold this lie by by people in the advertising and, and magazine industries who were in, the, in those days, they were the gatekeepers of how women were portrayed. Um, and they would say, oh, but it's just women love glamour. It's what women want. And I would be like, well, who said that glamour only looks a certain way? And who said that's what women want if they've got no alternative? If every magazine is doing the same thing and every ad campaign portrays women in the same way, how do you know that that's what women want? People like Mia and Melissa are leading by example, but they're still up against decades and decades of ingrained behaviour and business models that are reluctant to change the way that they do things. The media may have evolved from old-fashioned glossy magazines to filtered social media posts and websites, but the body and beauty ideals are evolving much slower. The mindframe guidelines are there to help prevent harm from those who are at risk, But they're guidelines, they're not rules, and they're not binding, leaving the media to address its own overuse of harmful standards. So the guidelines are not mandatory. That's the easy part of that question. It would be great to see all of the mindframe guidelines included in things like journalism and media education programs or professional development. 
but it would be really difficult to make the guidelines mandatory. I think one of the main issues is how do you regulate communication that sits outside traditional media like print, TV or radio? So they have codes of practice or editorial policies, but how do you regulate a person running a celebrity gossip site or a health influencer on social media who may not recognise themselves as media or as a journalist? Um, Social media organisations are getting better at regulating content um, within their own services. So TikTok, for example, has recently banned some content that's related to disordered eating. And that's a small step, I think, in the right direction. But say you were in charge for a day or for as long as you wanted, as long as you needed, what would you do? What big changes would you try and make? I actually think I'd be really strict and I'd bring in quotas and actually force a change rather than wait for a change to naturally happen because I'm sorry, it's 2022 and it hasn't happened. So for me... You can't be what you can't see. So I think we need people of all sizes on TV. We need people from different races and religions and ethnicities, all of that. We, we need it to be a melting pot. Um, and I think that the only way to actually get that to happen is to have it, make it legislation, make it that you have, you've got 10 jobs to fill. These are the way they have to be filled. After I left magazines, I was appointed chair of the National Body Image Advisory Board, um, which was a board of people from the industry, eating disorder specialists. There was someone from Butterfly, I believe, on on the board, psychologists and um, community groups. And we put forward to the then Minister for Youth, um, Kate Ellis, uh, our list of recommendations for a code of conduct. And that included things like um, the declaration of images that were photoshopped and the commitment by magazines and, and advertisers to not distort women's faces and bodies too much. I mean, even then the horse had bolted and this was probably 15 years ago. Um, so we put that code of conduct forward. We were told that it had to be a voluntary code, which we thought was going to be pretty useless, and indeed it was, and it was roundly ignored and nothing happened except that magazines collapsed. What's changed is that now the things that um, those gatekeepers, whether they were fashion editors, art directors, um, fashion designers, people who worked in advertising, the things they used to do to women's faces and bodies, we now do to ourselves on social media by using filters um, and by using, you know, apps like Face Facetune and things like that. So the 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 playing field or the battleground i guess you would say has very much moved from magazines and advertising to instagram and the world of influencers the world of celebrities and the world of regular people so if we can't enforce guidelines and standards in this rapidly evolving landscape what can we do the best thing to do is to nurture and develop your critical lens and by that i mean really think about what you're looking at and dissecting and acknowledge that often what you see in the media is not a true representation of reality. There is so much photoshopping that occurs. There is so much editing that occurs. And when it comes to young people in particular, we need to be teaching them from a very young age that that is not a reflection of reality.
it comes down to social media literacy and broader media literacy. Yes, it's all well and good to focus on social media, but we also need to focus on other outlets in terms of TV, cinema, even just what you see in advertisements. Often they focus on the thin ideal or the muscular ideal. I mean, admittedly, things are definitely changing and we're seeing a lot more diversity, but we're definitely still not there yet. And we need to focus on that a lot more Yeah. and give other people and other bodies the chance to be represented. So young people in particular see themselves represented from a young age and don't grow up with harmful internalized uh, thoughts and behaviors. To find out more about media or social media literacy or any of the other things Alex was just talking about, check out the Butterfly website, butterfly.org.au. For direct support, you can live chat while you're on the website or call the Butterfly helpline, one 4673 or 1-800-ED-HOPE if you prefer letters. To find out more about the Mindframe guidelines, go to mindframe.org.au If you're a journalist who has a favourite, bookmark that page and refer to it as often as you can. Thanks to our guests in this episode, Mia Friedman, Alex Cowan, Shelley Horton, Melissa Hoyer and Elizabeth Payton. Butterfly Let's Talk is an Icon Media production for Butterfly Foundation. It's produced by Camilla Beckett with lived experience support from Kate Mulray. Editing, hosting and all the boring stuff is done by Icon Media. Check us out, iconmedia.com.au. I'm Sam Icon. Thank you so much for your company.